This evening's reading is taken from Mark um, chapter 3. In fact, it's the entirety of chapter 3. Um, it can be found on page 1004 of the Bibles in front of you. 1004. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of the Pharisees were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked round at them in anger and deeply, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. 
Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my brothers and my mother. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alice, very much indeed. Now, I don't know whether you normally pick up a, a notice sheet, um, but this evening it's particularly helpful that you have one. It's got my headings on the back, always does, but this time they're particularly useful, even if you're not taking notes. So if you don't have one, no shame, but do the walk of shame over there and, 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 and pick one up. You might find it helpful. That's right, Jack Campbell, lead the way. But um, let, let me pray and um, let, let, me, let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, you, you tell us in your word that the unfolding of your words brings light. And so we pray that as you unfold the words of Mark 3 to us, you would shed light onto our lives and our weeks and our priorities and our loves and our hates. For Jesus' name's sake we pray it. Amen. Do turn back to page 1004. If you've uh, lost it, Mark chapter 3. Uh, poor old Neville Chamberlain, uh, British Prime Minister, 1937 to 1940, and I'm sure he wasn't all bad, but as any GCSE history student will know, he did make one fundamental error, which has really kind of cast a shadow over his memory. And you will know that after meeting with Adolf Hitler in Munich, September 1938, he came back confidently off that plane, clutching that bit of paper, saying, peace in our time. And uh, we all know that the reality was quite other than that. And it was the very beginning of the bloodiest, one of the bloodiest world wars um, the world has ever seen. It really is a very serious thing to think that one is at peace when one is really at war. And Mark's gospel here, we're just coming to the end of this little mini-series, Mark 1 to 3. Mark's gospel can be seen as very early first century war journalism, in a way. It documents an increasingly escalating conflict, which we read through these first few pages of Mark's gospel. And in the early chapters of Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus Christ can... Um, come and go as he pleases, the crowds follow. He can even go into synagogues as he pleases. But by the time chapter 3 rolls around, we find that the conflict is hotting up. And you'll see there in, in, in verse 6 of our passage, if you look down, there's um, a price on his head. His assassination is already being planned. And then if you look one verse further on, verse 7, you'll see he has to withdraw. And so the battle lines are increasingly clearly drawn. And if we ask who the protagonists are in this war, um, to start with, it looks like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are some of the enemies. But the, the more we dig a little bit deeper, we find that they are only foot soldiers, really, in this battle. And if we ask who the commanding officers are, as it were, in this war, we find that they are much, much greater than the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. In fact, this is a battle not between flesh and blood, not between Jesus Christ and other human beings, but it's a battle between heaven and hell. It's a battle between Satan and God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we are seeing unfolding 
through the pages of Mark's Gospel. That's why Mark's Gospel is characterized by uh, Jesus performing exorcisms. It's all over the place in Mark's Gospel, and it's him uh, having, enjoying little victories over Satan and his demons. There's a war on. So can I ask you, do you realize that there's a war on? A spiritual war. Do you realize that you and me, that we are right in the middle of this war zone between Satan and God? And we're right in the middle of it. There are three implications of war in our time, I think, and you'll see them if you're looking at the headings. The first is this, discard agnosticism. You know what agnosticism means? It means I'm not really sure. Discard agnosticism. Did you notice in our passage that no one in the passage is an agnostic about the Lord Jesus Christ? No one. In fact, I was scratching my head wondering, are there any agnostics in any of the Gospels? I think we'd be hard pushed to find many. In fact, in our passage here, we find that people fall into one of two clear-cut groups. The first group are the haters from verses 1 to 6. Have a look down at verses 1 to 6. It's the Pharisees. They arrive in verse 1 looking to accuse Jesus, and they leave in verse 6 looking to kill Jesus. And I think that's probably a dictionary definition of hate. They are the haters. And did you notice they are, they are deep haters? Do you notice the depth of their hate for the Lord Jesus Christ? Have a look at verse 4, if you would. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And what's their erudite intellectual response? The teachers of the law were the academic experts of the day within Judaism. They were professionals at having the answer. They loved to have the answer. They were always on the front foot. They would have joined the union society, the debating society. They'd have won, cleaned the floor with everyone else. And Jesus asked them here a very, very, very simple question. And what's their answer? Well, they remained silent. Must be quite a hate for the Lord Jesus Christ, mustn't it, to be willing to lose the argument in order to maintain one's hate for your opponent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, have a look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, it's not immediately obvious to most of us, probably, but in that day and age, the Pharisees and the Herodians were on opposite sides. They did not agree politically. They had deep rifts between them. They were enemies, really. And yet here, their shared hate for the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to make them united. It's quite a deep hate, isn't it, that they have for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they want to to kill him. So that's the haters, verses 1 to 6. What about the hopers, those who have hope in Jesus Christ? Have a look at verses 7 to 12. I'm going to read verse 7. A large crowd from Galilee, that's apparently in the west, followed Jesus. And when they heard about all Jesus was doing, many came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea. That's apparently from the south. And the regions across the Jordan, that's from the east and around Tyre and Sidon. Any guesses where that's? It's the north. Do you see what Mark is doing in a literary way? He's saying everyone from all four points of the compass were coming to Jesus, everyone. 
in literary terms, it's a way of saying the world is coming to Jesus. The world is hoping in Jesus. And in contrast to the haters, they're hoping in him. They're coming to be healed. And so they come with their migraines and their MS. They come with their crutches and their cancer. They come with their glandular fever and their glaucomas. And they say, fix me. Because Jesus is their hope. And they're not agnostic about Jesus. They believe in him enough to commute quite a distance to him. Their hope is in him, for he's their king. The one who's fighting Satan in their fallen world. Now, how about us? When one is caught in a war, I take it, I think, we cannot afford to be agnostics about which side we choose now, many of you will count yourself the same generation as me. I don't know what your experience has been talking to your grandparents about the Second World War, but I've often been taken aback by their strength of feeling going back to those days. And let me just say that it, Granny and Granddad were not agnostic about Nazi Germany. In fact, they felt very strongly against them. They were not agnostic about the Allies. They chose their side. Because war does that. War means we cannot be agnostic about which side we're on. And so it is today. There's a spiritual war on, and we can't be agnostic about which side to pick. Funny, isn't it? Agnosticism is really in vogue today. It's seen as arrogant to know something for certain, especially perhaps in the area of faith. Much more laudable to celebrate mysticism or the journey rather than the destination, the question rather than the answer. It sounds sort of intellectually mature somehow. The convinced believer, well, they make me feel frankly quite nervous. Might be a fundamentalist, a bit dogmatic, maybe an extremist, maybe a terrorist. No, it's the open-minded agnostic I want at my dinner parties and I want to make small talk with at the back of church. That's what I want. They're a bit more soft and cuddly. But verses 1 to 12 remind us there are no agnostics in the Gospels. Why? Well, for the simple reason that Jesus is in the Gospels, and wherever Jesus goes, agnosticism doesn't go. Because Jesus has a habit of splitting a crowd right down the middle. He's, he's, he polarizes people. People hate him or hope in him. He has the kind of Marmite effect, if I can put it like that. So can I ask you, are you an agnostic? Now, I guess there's different types of agnosticism. The first might be creedal agnosticism in what we believe. We might say intellectually, I'm not so sure. If that's you, just keep on investigating. I think the evidence is there. There are big answers to the big questions. But there's not just creedal agnosticism, there's lifestyle agnosticism, isn't there? If someone were to look at your life and my life, our bank statements, our diaries, our dreams, what would they conclude that we believe? Are we lifestyle agnostics? But do we realize there's a war on? We don't have that luxury. We need to discard agnosticism. As G.K. Chesterton reminds us, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Don't you like that? 
There's a war on. We need to discard agnosticism, choose a side. But of course, the question remains, which side will we choose? And so we come to the second heading, deduce the ascendancy. Don't you like these headings? D-A, they really appeal to me. Deduce the ascendancy from verses 22 to 30. Verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. You know, this itinerant preacher, this miracle man, he's been doing such amazing things that news of him has begun to ripple and arc out even to Lambeth Palace in Jerusalem, to the religious elite. And we're to imagine here that they send a high-powered, impressive delegation from Jerusalem. Do you notice it says they came down from Jerusalem? The pictures of them coming in their flowing robes with their academic hoods, with their Oxbridge theological degrees. Here are the QC silks of the theological world, the ones who have all the answers. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? So they, they, they humble themselves and come down, rather like Londoners go down anywhere else, even if we go north. And they're desperate to explain away Jesus' power. And they want to cast a slur on his character. And they want to throw some theological mud. And theologically speaking, there's nothing as muddy as Satan. So they try and throw some satanic things at him. Uh, Perhaps he's having such success getting rid of these demons because he's on the payroll of the prince of demons. How about that, Jesus Christ? But Jesus gives them a lesson on kingdom security straight out of Sandhurst training Week one, it's very basic stuff, end of verse 23. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In other words, Jesus is saying, come, come. Come now, I thought you were good at this theology stuff. Have another guess. Who do you think I might be working on behalf of? Because Satan will not oppose himself. Do you want to have another guess? And then verse 27, he puts them out of their misery. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. This is the fight. We're to imagine that a strong man has taken hostages. And he's, he's, he's got them trussed up under lock and key in his house. And then the next day, maybe the next week, we see those previous hostages walking free down Elizabeth Street holding a Tom Tom takeaway coffee, that sign of ultimate freedom. What would we conclude if we saw them? Wouldn't we conclude, well, there's been a stronger man who's trussed up and defeated that strong man and he's released the hostages so they can enjoy the flat white from Tom Tom. Wouldn't that be what we conclude? It's a very simple parable. It's a one-line parable really from Jesus. And I don't know, but you can imagine Jesus just quietly gesticulating to the men, women, and children whom he had exercised and healed when he said that. In other words, saying, do you see these people? I'm freeing them from the powers of darkness. You know, this guy used to have cancer. He doesn't anymore. Uh, This lady used to have depression, couldn't get up in the morning. She doesn't anymore. 
This guy used to have the shakes, Parkinson's. He doesn't anymore. Do you think this is the work of hell? No, no, no. This is the work of heaven. I'm the stronger man. And it's important for us, isn't it? Because when we're picking sides, we need to deduce who's in the ascendancy. In June 1940, Mussolini was convinced that German victory was assured in the Second World War. So much so, I didn't realize this, but so much so that he expected, when he declared war on the Allies, just to lose maybe 1,000, maybe 2,000 men. He was so sure of it. And of course, for a while, Mussolini looked to have backed the right horse, didn't he, if you know your Second World War history. Hitler's invasion of Poland, blitzkrieg on Belgium and Holland and France, and the Dunkirk evacuations. Mussolini's laughing in his office. I backed the right guy. German victory looked assured. But that is until the USA joined the war in 1941 after Pearl Harbor, after which point, generally speaking, things went against Nazi Germany. Victories for the Allies at Stalingrad and El Alamein and then in North Africa. And then the Italian powers, seeing the writing on the wall, seeing the ascendancy of the Allies, decided to depose Mussolini and sign a secret armistice pact with the Allies just before they were invaded by the Allies. See, when we're picking sides, it's important, isn't it, to deduce who is in the ascendancy. And if I can put this reverently, where eternity is concerned, one really doesn't want to back the wrong horse. It's a long time. Who's in the ascendancy? Who can we trust will win? And I ask that question ultimately. It's the forever question. Who will win forever? Now, of course, there are many schools of thought. Liberal humanists tend to think humanity will win out. They point to the unstoppable human progress, perhaps in the area of medical science, which is outstanding, increasing life expectancy. And so they champion the human race as a stronger man. Really? You know, it's not just medical science which has progressed. What about war? That's also progressed. What about economic inequality? That has also sadly progressed. Think back to the 2011 London riots. Think just last week to the increasing expressions of racism in in the light of the EU referendum result. Those things should give us pause for thought. I don't think humanity are going to win. We seem to be progressing some rather ugly things as well. What about liberal capitalism? Maybe you're a numbers kind of a guy or girl. You know, the liberal capitalists will trust the market forces, the inexorable growth of cash. But capital markets aren't in the ascendancy. Even this last week reminded us of that, let alone the 2008 recession. The markets are so unstable. That's not the stronger man. And then, of course, cynicals, hedonists see all of this and they say, well, of course, don't trust the markets, don't trust humanity, just live for yourself, just live for pleasure, live for each moment, go on holiday, do this, do that, if it feels good, do it, FOMO. But then, of course, pleasure dies, it doesn't last. And then you have the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And of course, he looks like he'll lose if we're honest, doesn't he? I know he healed and won arguments in Mark chapter 3, but even in Mark chapter 3, his assassination is being planned and alliances are forming against him. And it, it feels like Blitzkrieg and Dunkirk all over again. Loss, 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 loss. He's not in the ascendancy. And of course, it's awkward, isn't it? But we must admit that he dies. And if you want to be in the ascendancy, you really, it's lesson one. You really shouldn't die. But here's the thing, his death his death is his victory. And at that very moment, he, heaven's strongest man, volunteered to be tied up, trussed up by Satan so that you and I can go free. So that you and I can be released and brought into his kingdom of light so that we could be forgiven. And if we begin to doubt that, if the creedal or the lifestyle agnosticism begins to creep in and we say, really, can I believe that, really, 21st century London? We need to remember he walked free of the grave, didn't he, three days later, saying, it's true. I am the stronger. Can I change that? I am the strongest man. And incidentally, because he's in the ascendancy, because he will win, it simply means we've got to sign an armistice with him. If we don't, we'll be invaded. Have a look at verses 29 to 30. They're very difficult, perhaps unsettling verses for us. They should unsettle us. Truly, I tell you, Jesus praises his most important sayings with that little structured saying, truly, I tell you, listen up. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. And it's worth pausing at this point in the verse, isn't it? You can forgive all our sins and every slander we utter. That's amazing as we receive the bread and the wine this evening. Remember that verse. Come empty-handed. Forgiven. But let's read on. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now we need to listen very carefully here because many a Christian person has lost their assurance wrongly on the basis of misunderstanding this verse. Jesus is speaking to the teachers of the law and he's issuing them a final ultimatum. And he's saying you have to sign an armistice with me now. You have to receive my forgiveness, mine. And yet they persist in refusing to do that. Now here's the thing, they see all the evidence as to who Jesus Christ is. Even the demons have been given the game away, here's the Son of God. They see all the evidence and yet they refuse to be led to the natural conclusion that he is who he says he is. So much so that they label the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus' ministry as the work of Satan. They intentionally say, no, this is not the work of heaven's champion, it's the work of hell's champion. And Jesus says, if you or I do that persistently, if we are convinced by the evidence but not courageous enough to take the conclusion, well, then there's no forgiveness to be had. Why? Well, simply, there's no one else to sign the armistice with. For he is the only stronger man who has died for you and me. To reject him, well, it's to reject heaven. 
So friends, there's a war on, discard agnosticism, deduce the ascendancy, and finally and briefly, declare your allegiance. Declare your allegiance, verses 13 to 30. Now Mark is a very careful author, and he structures his gospel with real literary finesse. Sometimes I think the gospels are kind of created through some sort of jumble, and then it all came out, and we think, oh, I'm not quite sure, but I like this verse. But it's all carefully structured. And this last week, I've been scratching my head over these verses, wondering what on earth is going on and what this bit and how it relates to this bit. And and I've got quite excited about it. So will you permit me to be excited about it with you now? Just turn to the back of your sheet. If you haven't haven't got it, turn to it. It might be helpful. And I think what Mark has done here is he's used a symmetrical mirroring structure. Have a look at the little uh, pretty arrow thing I've done under Declare Allegiance. So do you see there... The outer level of of that arrow, Mark is talking about followers, people following Jesus. Then he's talking about Jesus' blood family, and then he's talking, as we've seen, about conflict. And what I think he's done is he's talking about two different types of, of allegiance to Jesus, and then he redefines the second one in the light of the first. Let me explain. The first type of allegiance to Jesus is to follow him. Have a look at 13 to 19. Jesus has called his apostles, those whom he wanted to call, and he commissions them to go and speak on his behalf and work on his behalf in the world. Now, of course, there are no longer any apostles. I'm not an apostle, you're not an apostle. But he's still calling followers to himself. And it's been one of the foremost joys over the last three years to see more and more followers join our number. As people hear the gospel proclaimed, as they think, no, Jesus is in the ascendancy. I need to show my allegiance to him. They come on board. You and I are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're a Christian. That's the first kind of allegiance. And the second kind is family. Very simply, have a look at verse 21. It's his blood family. It's a much more intimate type of allegiance. It's the closest bond any human being can share with another. The nuclear family. And now look at what Mark does to redefine the second in light of the first. Sorry, the first in light of the second. Have a look at verses 31 to 34. And I love this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see what Mark's done there? The deftness with which he did it? He's saying in a time of war, new allegiances must be formed. We must decide whom we are to follow. The question is, will you follow Jesus? And then it's as if he reads our minds and he says, oh, don't worry, following him is not a lonely business. It's not like kind of picking up a new Sunday hobby or choosing a new career. It's not just you and Jesus. It's not a lonely thing. It's a family thing. And as we decide to follow him, we join a new family. Jesus Christ becomes our brother. And God our father becomes our father. And it's an amazing thing. And I think what I want to say now as I close and as I preach my final paragraph at St. Michael's Chester Square is thank you to you. And I want to thank you to so many of you for being family to Katie and me. And I say this honestly with no hint of exaggeration, but as we have 
try to follow Jesus in this city where very few people try and do that. As we've tried to follow Jesus, what we found in you guys is more than colleagues, more than comrades, is that actually we've found you guys to be family to us. And I want to thank you for that. We've shared real laughs with you. We've shared tears with many of you. We've prayed with you. I've ministered to you. You've ministered to me. We've been a family. That's not an exaggeration. And that's been a very, very precious thing. And as Katie and I will drive out of London tomorrow morning early, what will pull on our heartstrings the most will not be the loss of postcode, but it'll be missing you guys, really. Because you can't leave a family without grieving. And so it's right that we find goodbyes quite difficult. That's, that's a good thing. But I wanted to thank you for that, really. And as I close, uh, then he looked at those seated in rows at St. Michael's Chester Square, and he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to believe what seems unbelievable, that there is a war on, a spiritual war, and we're in the middle of it. Help us, Father, where we are struggling to discard maybe lifestyle agnosticism. Help us to throw our lot in with Christ. Help us to deduce the ascendancy of Christ, to see that he really will win, that on the cross he has defeated Satan. And help us to declare allegiance to him this week. Whatever our worries or anxieties may be, may we stick our hand up and say, no, I'm for Jesus, I'm with Jesus because he is for me. And we pray it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.